Thanks for having me back. Uh, we'll try to say that again at the end. Um, Isaiah chapter 9. We are, uh, we're continuing in our series, uh, and he shall be called. And we are in the uh, third week. So we've touched on uh, Wonderful Counselor. We've touched on Prince of Peace. And this week, it is going to be Everlasting Father. So grab your Bibles, open them to, uh, to Isaiah chapter 9. And we are going to reread uh, verses 6 and 7. And this is going to be kind of our starting place uh, as we unpack Uh, This Advent season, how we waited for a Savior and how we still await the fulfillment of this promise that we have in Isaiah chapter 9. So read this with me, and then let's jump in, and we're just going to ask a few questions this morning uh, of of this text, of of what uh, Isaiah is prophesying for us. So Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder... And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. So this is what we're going to be looking at today. We're looking at the name of, of the Messiah, the Deliverer, the King who would, would come and free his people from bondage, free his people from uh, rule that wasn't his, that wasn't good, that wasn't uh, leading to flourishing and health and life. We're going to look at how instead uh, God is promising a Messiah, a King, a Deliverer who would come and would rule and reign in such a way that was eternal and not just temporary, who would rule and, uh, and reign in such a way that would, would lead to the flourishing of, of his people. And this is what the promise is. And so we're just going to ask three simple questions. Um, I mean, hopefully they, they actually ask some good questions, but there are three really simple questions, really just why, how, and what. So why does God promise a deliverer who would be called Everlasting Father? Like, why those two words? And why in this time would that be the promise that these people and, and this generation need? And secondly, how does Jesus fulfill this in this Advent period as we're waiting for Jesus to come as a baby, but then now as we await his return, how does Jesus fulfill this? And then the third question we ask is, how does this everlasting Father, how does, what does this mean for us today? As, as we wait, as, as we see the fulfillment coming true, what exactly does this mean for us today? So as we jump in, I do want to pray uh, because I need to get my thoughts straight and I need to want, let, just, just try and clarify all of the, uh, the, the, the stuff, I can't even talk, the stuff that's going on in my head. So pray with me. Jesus, uh, we are so thankful this morning that we get to gather. We're so thankful that we, um, we get to read from your word and we get to see what you have promised, what you have spoken. Uh, we get to see even glimpses of how uh, what you have promised is coming true. And yet, God, we await the time when you will return and you will make all things new. Well, you will uh, rule and reign over this earth uh, completely. That you will uh, do away with sin and death. You will do away with the brokenness that we see and you will rule uh, eternally in such a way that brings us uh, into your kingdom where we can flourish, where we can have life, where we can enjoy you forever. And so this morning as we open up this passage, would you open our eyes? Would a light dawn in our hearts as you have promised? Would you be shining this good news into us that we could be transformed, that we could be changed, that we could uh, change who rules and reigns in our hearts? And God, we could set you up as the ruler, the king of our lives. So deliver us this morning anew. Would you just uh, remind us of who you are and what you've done? 
We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. So before we jump in with the first question, before we jump in with the why does God promise a deliverer who would be called Everlasting Father, I think it's really important that we break down what are we talking about with Everlasting Father? Because I've heard this sermon spoken, or I've heard these words used, and, and I have my ideas when I come into this, this passage. Whenever I hear the words Everlasting Father, I have an idea in my mind. So Everlasting, super easy. I mean, this is lasting ever, forever lasting, lasting forever, eternal. It's easy. It's that idea that it will never end. So the promise is for this Messiah who would come and rule forever. And it's actually really simple to even see in this passage. He will establish it, uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This idea that it wouldn't be a temporary ruler, it wouldn't be a temporary king, it wouldn't be a a temporary judge or a temporary anything who may come and do something good for a period of time, but then they'll pass away and will go back into this temporary rule once again. Like The the cycle that we've seen, not just in humanity, but specifically in the the kingdoms of Israel and of Judah, is this, this cycle of a good king and a bad king, a good king, a bad king, a good king, a good king, a bad king. And so this, this everlasting promise that there would be one who would actually rule from here all the way to the end, never changing, always consistent, is a beautiful promise. But the second word, father, this is the one where I usually bring my eyes into this one, and I think of this biological father, my, my dad. And this isn't what this verse, this, this word uh, this context is pointing towards. It's not talking about a biological father. In, in the context that we read it, it was commonly uh, talked about or, or, or kings and emperors, rulers, pharaohs, they were talked about as father. They were talked about as this ruler who would be like the dad to them. And so that's the, the, the mindset that we have to have when we see this, is that the context that we're reading into this is uh, this ruler or king, but, but better than the other ones. Better than the other kings, the other pharaohs, the other rulers, the other people who would rule and reign, we're talking about someone who would actually have concern for, care of, and who would discipline his people, his subjects well. We're we're talking about a, a good ruler, a good king, one who would last forever and who would rule and reign with concern for, care of, and discipline of his people in such a way that would bring flourishing that would bring wholeness, that would bring life. That's what the promise is here. And so the promise is for that Messiah, that deliverer, who would be eternally reigning in such a way that draws his people to life. Now why? Well, why would God promise this specific promise? Why would he use these two words? Well, if you look at the kingdom specifically of Israel and Judah, you see very clearly, very quickly, that we're not in a good place. So Israel, the northern kingdom, um, if you know the history of Israel, um, the, the people rebelled against the reign and rule of God through the judges, and they said, we want a king. We want a king who will rule and reign, who will, who will be over us, who can protect us, who we can look to, who will, who will keep us safe. And so God gave them a king, and the first king was Saul, 
who didn't follow God well. And then David, whose whole heart was devoted to God. And then Solomon, his son, followed after him. And there was a promise to David that he would never fail to have a son sitting on the throne. And so Solomon, and then Rehoboam, and then it continues down the line. However, when it gets to Rehoboam, uh, he is not a good king. He decides that he is going to rule harshly. And so the kingdom is divided. It's split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, from Jeroboam on, there are 19 kings. And when we come into this passage, this prophecy is placed during the time, either on, during, or after, like we're talking a few years, where Israel is destroyed by the Assyrians. The the kingdom is done. There have been 19 kings from Jeroboam all the way to the last king where they are destroyed. Can you guess how many good kings out of those 19 there were? This shocked me. Zero. Zero. I was, I thought there'd be at least two. I, Dennis, I was with you. It's great. I'm reading through and I'm, I'm looking through and, and it never says this, these kings followed God with their whole heart. It never says that they drew the people to worship God. It never says that they pointed the people in such a way that showed concern for, care of, discipline of the subjects in such a way that led to their flourishing. It was always a way. It was always to sin. It was always to brokenness. It was always rejection of God. 19 kings, about 200 years, 210 years of reign and rule of evil kings who rejected God. That's crazy to me. And so when we, when we look at this prophecy, it's set in this time where Israel, God has had enough, and he turns them over, and the Assyrians come in and wipe them out. What a promise for Israel. But it's not just Israel, because the, the southern kingdom... Judah isn't doing too much better. So at this point, um, uh, sorry, I'll just say, uh, the whole kingdom of Judah lasts longer. It lasts about 340 years. There's 20 kings in total. This one's a little bit better. Actually, a lot bit better. Anything's better than zero. It's a lot bit better. Uh, So out of the 20 kings, can you guess how many kings actually followed God? Well, three is low, actually. It's, it's like, it's a lot bit better, I guess. A lot, lot better. Eight kings, eight kings in total decide that they are going to follow God fully. Twelve of those kings uh, are going to choose to reject God's reign and rule. So they have about 200 years of good rule and about 140 years in total of rule of kings who did not follow God, did not lead the people well. When you read of the 200 years of these eight good kings who would point his people back to God, who would remember uh, the law, who would remember what God had done for them, how he had rescued them from the Egyptians, how he had delivered them out of that slavery, who pointed them back time and time again. It just wasn't enough because it only took about 130 years before the southern kingdom, Judah, would be destroyed because they had rejected God's reign and rule too. We enter into this time where Israel has just been destroyed and where Judah is in the midst of a rule of a king who does not want what's best for them, but they're more concerned about their reign and their rule, their palace, their possessions, their power. This is what we enter into. And, it, and it's not just Israel and it's not just Judah But when we look at the the kings of the earth, when we look at Assyria or Egypt or any of the kingdoms surrounding Israel at this time, you don't see good kings. When you think of Egypt, you don't think of this prosperous uh, place for anybody to live. You, you think of slavery. You, you think of people being forced to build pyramids and monuments and tombs and temples. 
while people starved to death, while people were stuck in slavery. The Assyrians, that the, the name conjures up and is synonymous with this, uh, this tyrannical rule, with harsh rule, with, with war. They were a horrible, horrible people. The, the fact that them and the, the Babylonians would be used to judge the people was a shock to the prophets who said, like, God, how could you use these people? They're more sinful. They're more broken than we are. It's horrible. The, the, the reign and the rule, the, the, the drawing people into sin and brokenness is everywhere. But it's, it's not just that they were drawing them into this sin and this brokenness, but it's that none of them lasted very long. In fact, in 746 BC, the, the entire uh, royal line of the Assyrians is, is murdered. Uh, like they had this amazing thing going on where they were, they were starting to rule the known world. And yet with treachery and, and with backstabbing, with murder, suddenly the whole line is wiped out. And whether you look at the Egyptians or whether you look at the Assyrians, whether you look at any of these kingdoms, there was no king who was consistent. They were all overthrown, murdered. They were dying in battle, defeated by another king, forced to pay tribute or be deported or, uh, or just destroyed. The, the world is a mess. The world that this prophecy is held in is a mess. And so this promise of an of a everlasting father is a beautiful promise, not just for the, uh, you know, the, the Israelites and for, for the kingdom of Judah, but for the whole world. How desperate would they have been for a king who would rule and reign with concern for, care of, and discipline of his subjects, bringing, as we saw last week, peace, but also flourishing of life to their people. The idea that there could be an eternal ruler, an eternal king, an eternal Messiah and deliverer would have been something that many people would have cried out for. This is the promise we get in our text, eternal, everlasting Father. And the best thing that we see in our text is that it's followed up uh, not just with a specific promise to Israel and to Judah, but in, in Isaiah eleven nine. He says, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters covers the sea. This is not just a promise for this chosen kingdom. It's a promise for the earth. It's a a promise that there would be a Messiah who would come, who would rule over everything. And that's good news in the broken world that we see. And as Christians, I think it's really easy for us to agree with this. When, when we look at our Bible, when we look at the world, I think it's really easy for us to agree and say, yes, the world is broken. The world has rejected the rule and the reign of God. Even I in my life, at some points in my days, reject the reign and rule of God. I don't follow him perfectly. I don't follow him fully every single day. Jeff Vanderselt talks about this in his book, Gospel Fluency, where he says, we're all unbelievers in some ways. Whether we don't believe that God is always good, whether we don't believe that God is in control, whether we don't believe that God is sovereign, whether we don't believe that God will give us everything we need for our enjoyment, whatever it is, there are times when we do not believe that God is always in control, reigning and ruling in the best way. We need that everlasting Father. We need him to come. So as a Christian, I think it's easy to agree with this, but if you are not a Christian, I think you can still whether you believe the Bible or not, whether you believe the God who is held within the Bible, and it's not held, who is revealed in the Bible, I think you too can look at this world and see everything that's going on. You can look at the rulers, the people who are reigning, and how they care mostly about their own power, their own possessions, their own palaces. 
Don't we look at the world we live in and wonder what will happen in the political arena that we're in? where it seems like every few years everything is changing and switching. There's no consistency. There's no path that we're on. It's always just changing. That even those people who are in power, do do we believe that they actually want the best for the country or do they just want the power themselves? When we look at the corruption that's in politics or in the police, we cry out for justice. Don't we look at the way that the, the homeless or the indigenous people, the poor, the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow are treated and desire deeply for hope, for change, and for justice for them? Don't we long to see flourishing, not just in our lives, but the whole world, that we would be led well and kept safe? Isn't this a cry even outside of the biblical narrative? This is what we long for. The Messiah who was to take on the mantle of wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace would come and not just be for Judah and Israel alone, but for the whole earth. And how desperately our cry should be, come, come. So back to the prophecy in this moment in the time. Yes, it's a a dark period. The whole world is in need of this deliverer. And so God's promise starts with this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So what does God do? He sends a light. John 1, 9 says this, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The promise starts to be fulfilled. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting. We're talking 700-ish years from the promise in Isaiah to when Jesus comes. And yet, it I don't know about you, but doesn't seem like it happened the way I thought it would happen. When you look at how is Jesus the fulfillment of this prophecy, what kingdom was he over? What throne did he sit on? How has he been reigning eternally? Have you actually asked those questions or is it just me? I'm, I'm the only one. Okay, okay. <laughs> It's tricky because Jesus never rules an earthly kingdom. And not just that, but he's actually never even called everlasting father his whole life. He's never even called father in the gospel. Like, nothing. And so you're kind of looking at this going, but so what's happening? You, you promised that this Messiah who would be born would be the everlasting father. He's never rich, never a king, never powerful, didn't hold office, was young when he died, uneducated from the middle of nowhere, had no real following when he was killed, was not a warrior, never won a battle, overthrew a kingdom. He was not even impressive to look at. How is this the one we've been waiting for? Not only that, did he never rule an earthly kingdom, he never ruled the world. And not only did he not rule the world, but he obviously has not been reigning a kingdom of earth since he came. There's been no everlasting. There's been no reign and rule that we can see right here, right now, as a kingdom. The, the one that we would expect. The idea that the, the Israelites had, and that so many of us would have, is that, well, this, this Messiah would come, and he would, he would create this earthly state, this kingdom where he would, he would rule and reign, protect. He would care for his people. And they would be safe and they'd be able to flourish. 
and that more and more people would just want to come and be a part of this. But that didn't happen. It didn't happen. When he's born, he's visited by Magi, who came searching for the king of the Jews, born into Bethlehem of the line of David. For out of you shall come a ruler who will be a shepherd of my people Israel. He's lavished with gifts as a king in Matthew 2. He has the opportunity to rule the whole earth, all the kingdoms of earth and all their glory. In Matthew 4, if only he would bow down and worship Satan, the king of the air, the one who had dominion to give it all away. He had the opportunity. He speaks of the, the breaking in of the kingdom of God 32 times alone in Luke, and yet we never see that kingdom come. During his crucifixion, he's hailed as the king of the Jews sarcastically. He's given a crown of thorns, a staff as a scepter, and lent a scarlet robe to be dressed up as a failed king. And then he's mocked, beaten, spit on, and crucified. Where's this king who would rule and reign? Even Pilate is confused as to who this Jesus is. When in John 18, 36, he says, Are you a king? And Jesus answered, well, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. What's happening? Are we confused yet about what kind of kingdom And what kind of king Jesus is? Because none of these answer the question. By coming into this world, we expected that he would be born, not in a manger, but into the palace. Born with a crown and a scepter and a robe. And yet Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, as he says. The kingdom that he is revealing, the kingdom that is breaking in, is one that is spiritual. It's not a kingdom that would take over the world by, by might and by uh, victory through battle and war. It, it's one that wars for the hearts and the minds and the will and the affections of every man and woman. It breaks in as we surrender to this king. It, it breaks in as we no longer try to do this life by ourselves as our own kings. And I don't think I need too many illustrations in my own life or point back at you to say how many of us really feel like we're doing well as the king of our lives. I can't even control my three kids. Like, I am useless. Thank God that that's not what it's supposed to be. Thank God that there is a a king who would come and reveal a, a new way, a different way. By coming into the world, Jesus, born of a virgin of the line of David in the city of Bethlehem, from Nazareth, escaping to Egypt, fulfilled the prophecies made of the Messiah's birth. He was born rightfully as king. He fulfilled this prophecy by being born into that royal line. Then he lived a sinless life, revealing the will and the person of the Father, as John 10 talks about. He died a willing death in our place, the one called the king of the Jews, a king not of this world. He died so that he might secure our release 
from the power of sin, which is death, defeating the power of the kingdom of the air, who is Satan, and appeasing the wrath of God by his perfect sacrifice offered to God on our behalf so that we could gain access to the Father through his resurrection from the dead. So he lives forever. He, 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 there wasn't an end when he died because he rose again. He lives eternally as he has ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father waiting to return to the earth to judge justly and with righteousness and to seal the victory, not just of a a spiritual kingdom, but of this whole earth, that all of creation might come under his rule and reign. And this is what we wait for in the Advent season. Jesus came, and yet we wait for him to return again. We long for that everlasting Father to come and make his rule and reign over all the earth. This is how Jesus has and will fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. He was born, lived sinless, died willingly, rose victoriously, ascended into heaven where he waits to return and establish his kingdom here on earth. I'll say it again. Jesus is a king of a kingdom that is not of this world right now. It's spiritual, and it is breaking into this world, not in military battle, but through the war for the heart and the soul and the mind and the affections of man. And he's not dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, waiting to return and seal his victory and kingship over all of creation. And we can trust him as one who is good and who is in control because he has actually cared for us, has had concern for us, and has disciplined us for our good because he has served us to win this victory. This is what Philippians 2, 7 to 11 says. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, is King, to the glory of God the Father. We have a spiritual king who has secured his right by birth to the throne of this earth with obedience to death and victory over death. He has conquered the kingdom of this earth. That's our hope. That we no longer have to be slaves to the king of this earth. But that we can actually be servants of the king of heaven. That we could actually know this God who came to earth and revealed himself, revealed his will, what he's like, what he desires, what he's calling us to, that we could actually have reconciliation with God. And so we have a decision to make with Jesus. We have a decision to make. What do we do with him? What do we do with this king, this Messiah, this deliverer? Do we accept him or reject him? And not just a one-time thing, but a daily occurrence. Who will we live for? Who will we live to? What do we do with Jesus? Do we bow the knee knowing his kingdom is eternal, his rule is just and righteous and for the blessing and good of his subjects? Or do we reject him and try to do things our own way? Try to see how we can fare by ourselves. Jesus has set up a kingdom that dwells not in the boundaries of a land, but in the individual heart, in the, in, the, in the church, in the people that he has called out of this world into everlasting life with him. John 1, 12 says this. 
Sorry, I'll, I'll start at verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you have not yet believed in Jesus, receive him as the deliverer you need from your own failed rule and reign, from the failed rulers of this world and from being ruled by sin and Satan and death. Would you ask yourself, why not? What's holding you back from serving a king who actually cares for you? So much so that he would come to earth and die in your place so that you wouldn't have to endure the wrath of God. That while you were an enemy, before you did anything that was good, before you did anything that would welcome him to come and do this for you, while you were an enemy, he died in your place. What kind of a king does that? What kind of a ruler have you ever seen who has done that? We are surrounded by rulers who only care about keeping themselves in power, keeping their own possessions and their power, their money, their stuff, keeping themselves safe. Jesus is the example of, of a ruler who does the opposite of what you expect from someone who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is everlasting Father. He comes and he dies for you. That should blow our minds. Because all of this is great. Why, why, what is holding you back you should, you should be hopefully thinking, yes, I need a ruler like that because it gets better than just having a ruler who cares for, is concerned for, and disciplines us so that we flourish. We have an eternal father who actually cares for his subjects in such a way that he actually welcomes us as sons. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not just subjects, but children of God. He says in John later, uh, I don't call you uh, servants, but I call you friend. He, he, there's a relationship that he actually welcomes us into that is not just other and, and separated, but he actually wants something deeper. And this is what, uh, th- what does everlasting father mean for us today? Well, the, uh, the eternal father, the everlasting father wants more than just servants. We don't just serve a king. We are not just slaves and subjects that are cared for. We have the right to become children, sons of God, heirs of the kingdoms. This is what Romans 8.15 says. You receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. I, I, I use the word sons constantly because that's the, the, the Bible's usage of this, and it's for a reason. This is what J.I. Packer says. He says, In Roman law, it was recognized practice for an adult who wanted an heir, someone to carry on the family name, to adopt a male as his son. Only males were able to um, keep on the family name. The apostles proclaim that God so loved those whom he redeemed on the cross that he has adopted them all as his heirs to see and share the glory into which his only begotten son has already come. God has sent his son to redeem those under the law 
that we might receive the full rights as sons. We, that is, who were foreordained as adoption as sons, as Ephesians 1 says, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When you are called a son, if you are a man or a woman, the beautiful thing is that he is saying that you have an inheritance with him, that you will actually inherit God. This is so countercultural <laughs> that not just one heir would be chosen, but that many, many, many heirs would be chosen, that, that God would want to share everything he has. And not just with men, but with women. This should blow our minds away. We are not just slaves of a good king if we receive Jesus and believe in him as our king. We become part of the family of God, which means we get privileges. And this is exciting, or it should be exciting for us. Because what are the privileges of adoption? Well, there's a bunch of them, but these are a few of them. We get to relate to God as Father, which means we have this ability to pray to him directly. We have an intimacy with him. When Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he says, pray this, our Father who art in heaven. Our Father. He's not far off and distant. He wants us to come near to him, have relationship with him. We're no longer slaves, but sons who know the will of the Father and can know him intimately. He loves us and understands us. He cares for our needs. He says that he gives us everything we need for our enjoyment and is the giver of good gifts who does not change like the shifting shadows. He is good. He cares for us deeply. We have, as Romans 8 says, an internal witness and a seal, an assurance of our sonship. We have freedom and confidence to come near without worry about judgment because As adopted children, he has dealt with our sin. In Roman law, the idea would be that when you were adopted, the the, the person who adopted you would take on your debt and that you would actually take on their inheritance. Your sin and your shame and your brokenness, your rebellion was taken off of you by the Father and on you was placed a sonship an eternal inheritance that never spoils and fades and perishes. That's beautiful. We have fellowship and connection. And like I said, we have this inheritance in heaven that will never go away. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, as Romans 8 says. We get God. I don't don't know if you get that, but we get God. The thing we were created for, the thing that God made us to enjoy back in the garden where we walked with him, talked with him, did life with him. We get that back. A full reversal of all the sin and the brokenness, the the rebellion that happened, the separation of God and man, that is all reversed. We get God. The most beautiful thing that we could ever attain. And we're heirs, co-heirs with Christ of everything, which means the whole kingdom of God will be ours. I, like, nobody's mind's blowing. We, we are heirs of the entire kingdom of God, which means everything God has, he will give to us to reign and rule in. I can't even take care of my kids. 
God will perfect us. We'll take away all of our shame, all of our brokenness, all of our sin. And he will actually make us to be the rulers that we were meant to be, co-heirs with Christ in this new heaven and this new earth. It's so counterintuitive, at least in my mind, that the way that we become co-heirs with Christ, co-rulers with Christ, is that we would give up our thrones, that we would give up our kingdoms, the ones that we have tried to build, the ones that we have tried to rely on, the ones that we think will give us the joy and the satisfaction that we're longing for, if only we give that up and let Christ rule and reign in our lives, we actually gain so much more than what we could ever attain today. The whole kingdom of God will be ours to reign and rule in because God will perfect us and will make us the way we were supposed to be. This, this blows my mind. Jerry Packer says this as he continues in this chapter. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of becoming God's child, having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayer and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. That justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance of the future is the primary and fundamental blessing is not a question, but adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Basically saying this, if you do not see yourself as a son, as a daughter of God, your worship will be stunted. Your ability to follow God as Father, everlasting Father, will be stunted because you will not see yourself as a son and a daughter who has the opportunity to inherit eternity with God. And you will be so focused on controlling your life and your kingdom and your stuff here and now. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thoughts of being God's child. Christian, have you rested and come to understand your relationship with the Father? Not only forgiven of your past and of your future, accepted, but able to actually access the Father Are you living in and worshiping in that knowledge? Because this morning, this is what God is calling you to. He is reminding you of the kind of everlasting father he is and will be. An unchanging one who delivers us from our own kingdoms. Who delivers us from our own failed reign and rule in our lives. Who will be a good king over us. Who will care for, have concern for, and discipline us towards heaven. And that welcomes us into relationship. Is that the God you worship? Is that the the God you see and you know? Because if not, repent. Turn away from the God who is distant and far and turn to the God who is near. The God who loves, who cares for you deeply. And to those who don't yet know Jesus, this Christmas season, I'm not just calling you to bend a knee to the king. I'm calling you to accept the gift of adoption into the family of God by believing in and receiving the person and the work of Jesus, the everlasting Father on your behalf. Jesus, who has done the work to be and reveal the everlasting Father for us so that we could be restored in relationship with God forever. 
that we would be ruled and reigned by him, by a righteous, holy king, that he would care for us and discipline us because he loves us and has concern for our well-being. Allow the light of heaven to shine into your heart and mind to allow you to see the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. See his deep love and sacrifice for you so that he could welcome you into his family forever, eternally. If you do anything this season, come and join the family of God, whether for the first time or be reminded of your place in it. Let's pray together.